With your Bibles still open, let me also read verses 31 and 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Let's pray. We come before you, true and living God, in this moment very much aware that you are creator and we are creature, you are lawgiver, and we are those called to obey. We come before you very aware that all of our efforts at obedience fall desperately short. So we need to hear two things from you, at least, Father. We need to hear the truth about ourselves and our sin and the truth about Jesus. Would you please speak these truths to our hearts? In Jesus' name, amen. I used to hear my pastor dad tell the story of the father who told his child to sit down and the child refused and so again the father told his child to sit down and again the, the child refused to sit and finally the father said son if you don't sit down I'm going to need to discipline you at which point the child sat down and said, I'm sitting down on the outside, but I'm still standing up on the inside. In the Sermon on the Mount, King Jesus is addressing all of us who think that so long as we are sitting down on the outside, it doesn't matter what's going on on the inside. In the verses that were just read and in verses before and verses after, Jesus gives us one example of after another, teaching us that what matters is not mere external conformity to God's law, but internal conformity and fulfillment of that law. It, it is not good enough that I am sitting down on the outside if God has told me to sit down all the way through. True sitting is when I am gladly and willingly and happily and humbly and completely sitting both on the outside and on the inside. Jesus has taught us last week that it's not good enough for us to say, Hey, I haven't murdered anyone with my hands, so that must mean I'm okay. That's not good enough if, in fact, we have murdered them in our hearts. 
And with our anger and hatred and slander and name-calling and demeaning and character assassination. Or, as we will see today, it is not good enough that I never ever go to bed with somebody who is not my wife, if in fact, secretly, down deep in my heart, I want to. If I'm pure on the outside, but lusting on the inside, I'm an adulterer, Jesus says. That's the main point Jesus is making throughout Matthew 5. What goes on in the inside is as important as what goes on on the outside. Every commandment of God has internal relevance and application as well as external. In other words, depth matters. Depth matters. Today, King Jesus applies this standard that depth matters to the, to the topic of sexual behavior and thoughts, a topic that is never much fun to talk about, probably even less fun to listen to, but very important to talk about and to listen to. The issue of sexual purity in an impure world, which by God's definition, sexual purity is sexual desire, expression, and intimacy between one man and one woman in a covenanted marriage relationship for life. Sexual purity is, by God's definition, desire, expression, and intimacy between one man and one woman in a covenanted marriage relationship for life. That issue is a huge one in our day. And it's one that needs clarity. It's one that needs conviction. And it's one that needs to be bathed and immersed and baptized with grace. Because the issue is so important, and it is such a front burner issue, I believe, I believe in some ways in all of our lives, I believe we need to take a couple of messages to get through this text. The first message uh, to set some definitions as given to us by King Jesus and then to establish some hope as given to us by King Jesus and then we'll come back next week and try to establish some applications and some helps to get along the way in the process of growth. This, this, this issue is important. I think it's important we can see for at least three uh, reasons. First of all, by the fact that Jesus taught it. Jesus actually, in this message, the Sermon on the Mount, pauses and addresses sexual morality and purity. If Jesus taught it, it must be important. And remember, if you think that this is an improper topic, for a mixed crowd on a Sunday, Jesus brought it up. Jesus brought it up. And Jesus tells me as a pastor in Matthew 28 that we are not only to make disciples of all nations and baptize them, adding them to the church, we are also to teach them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And so... I assure you, what's going on right now is not an act of desire by one of your pastors. It's an act of obedience. And so, it is important 
Why is it important? Because Jesus taught it. It's also important because of the prominence that this issue has in the Scriptures. It is a massively important thing because it is emphasized over and over and over in the Word of God. It takes a place in the Ten Commandments. You shall not commit adultery. We read in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 through 5, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgresses and wrongs his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives His Holy Spirit to you. Or 1 Corinthians 6, 18-20, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. What you do with your body is important because it's not your body. In Ephesians 5, we are told that we are not even to talk about or joke about sexual sin. And we are to talk about and treat the gift of sex with nothing but gratitude. Listen to Paul. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, no foolish talk, or crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that Everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Oh, dear ones, this is of serious importance as testified over and over and over in the Word of God. We know this is important because Christ taught it. We know it's important because it's emphasized so much in Scripture. And we know it's important, thirdly, because of the untold grief. The untold grief and suffering that sexual sin produces in our homes, in our bodies, in our society in our souls, and in our children. This is so important because the grief that sexual sin produces at every level of human society and every level of our own personal existence, that grief is beyond description. It is beyond 
measuring, when sex is idolized, when it's made the core of our identity, when it's made in effect as it is with so many today, the very center and reason for their existence, when sex is divorced from committed lifelong marriage relationships, it becomes a family dividing, a society and children destroying, a self-devouring obsession. From the ugly evil of child sexual abuse to the wrenching effects of broken homes to the aching shame of pornography to the demeaning exploitation of women to the simple but powerful realities of personal loneliness and a hollowed out sadness that are caused by sexual sins, the effects are devastating. And only those in denial will deny it. Tim Keller writes, Traditionally, you did not have sex with someone who was not your spouse. Put another way, you did not give your body to someone unless you committed your whole life to them and they to you. And you both gave up your individual freedom to bind yourself in the covenant of marriage. Contemporary adults, however, want freedom, including sexual freedom, so they have sex with each other without committing their lives to one another, which typically leads to chronic loneliness and a sense of being used, and well, it should. Sex in our culture is no longer something that unites people together in binding community. It is a commodity for exchange. But the Bible tells us that sex is designed by God, not as, not as a means of self-gratification, but as a means of self-donation that creates stable human community. Did you hear that? The Bible tells us that sex is designed by God, not as a means of self-gratification, but as a means of self-donation, self-giving, that creates stable human Community. Sex is designed by God as a means of self-donation. Let, let me say it right up front. Human sexuality is a gift from God. And sexual pleasure at the right time, in the right way, with the right person, as defined and provided by God, with the right person, may be enjoyed with a thankful and praising heart. Sex is not forbidden by God, it is created by God and commanded in marriage and intended for pleasure. And God's design for the good of all is that it be a bond between one man and one woman in a covenanted marriage relationship for life. For life. In these days, whenever the subject of sexuality comes up, it always leads to conversation about same-sex attraction and sin. And in fact, a year or two ago, I forget exactly when now, I forget the date for this, a group of theologians came up with a statement called the Nashville Statement, which is a wonderful statement of the law and will of God as it pertains to these things. It highlights the, the current same-sex issues and 
takes a stand with good reason for biblical ethics in this regard. Those who signed this statement number in the hundreds, but they, they include such varied theologians and pastors and teachers as Al Mohler and H.B. Charles and Rosaria Butterfield and Kevin DeYoung and John Piper and Francis Chan and Wayne Grudem and Jackie Hill Perry and Miguel Nunez and J.I. Packer and Matt Chandler and many others. Those who wrote it and signed it felt that the cultural pressure that we as the church are, are, are feeling and experiencing that pressure to reject and deny what the Bible teaches, a pressure being applied these days from all sides, including very often the inside of the church, that pressure that is leading many to compromise in many churches, that needed a clear clarion answer, and the Nashville statement provides that. The volume of what we're hearing the volume of voice to pressure us to compromise, that volume is high and it is consistent and it is steady and it is unrelenting. And it needs an answer. But folks, I want you to hear this. From my study of Scripture, I need to say this. If we are going to echo what the Bible emphasizes... And if we are going to address what is most urgent in our world and in our times, I believe that much more emphasis needs to be put, I'll put it this way, on heterosexual sins than on homosexual sins. Biblically, there's maybe a dozen or two same-sex passages in Scripture that would take us 30 minutes to find and read. But there are so many dozens of texts on other sexual sins, it would take us hours just to find them. It's not to suggest that same-sex sin is not important, but it is to say, in my judgment, it's not the most important issue. Other forms of sexual sin have caused far more harm to families and people and health in society than same-sex sins have or ever will have. Remember back in the old days with King David before he was king and he took on Goliath, slew Goliath, and then the ripple-out effect of the victory over the giant was that many Philistines were killed and the people of Israel started to cry out and celebrate and dance in the streets, singing out what? Do you remember? Saul has killed, King Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his ten thousands. My friends, I believe same-sex sins have killed their thousands and have killed their, even their millions, but heterosexual sins have killed their billions. They have killed their billions. Jesus addresses this head-on. Jesus addresses it head-on. And He does so in a way, way folks, that, that makes it impossible for us to get off the hook. Impossible for us to say that's somebody else's problem. 
don't know if you ever noticed, noticed this about how we define sin, but we tend to define sin in terms uh, of activity and actions that we are not guilty of. And the worst sins are those that we are least likely to commit. And it so often applies to these kinds of things. But King Jesus says, no, you can't get off the hook that way. This is for you. This is for me. He makes it very hard to see ourselves as innocent. One of the effects of the Sermon on the Mount, and, and your elders, Leo, Alex, and I, before uh, we started worship here uh, today, we were praying. And, and one of the things we prayed about and thought about was the reality that the Sermon on the Mount is convicting. It is hard. It is difficult. It, it, it shoots arrows of conviction at us like... Like Matt said earlier, you know, it's not like Jesus comes along and makes it easier than the Old Testament. He makes it harder than the Old Testament. And the end result of it is, he doesn't really make it harder. I've got to correct that theologically. He doesn't make it harder than the Old Testament. He just teaches us what God meant in the Old Testament to begin with. And what he meant was, you have to be holy on the inside as well as the outside. But what the Sermon on the Mount does and what this particular text does, one of the effects of is that it levels us all. It finds us all guilty. It passes a guilty sentence on every single human soul. And here's something we can unite on with our different politics and our different backgrounds and our different cultures and our different classes and our different educational levels and advantages and disadvantages and lots of other things. Here's something we can unite on. We are all equally guilty. We are all equally guilty. In the sight of God, we are equal. We're the same. We're united. We're all guilty. We all need the grace of God. We all need the mercy of God. We are all sinners. And in fact, we're all guilty sexual sinners, according to Jesus. Pay attention now as we go to the text. But as we go there, let me say one more thing. This is just one of those topics in case you couldn't tell that it requires being set up. Just, there are too many ways in which things can be misunderstood and heard in a way that's not helpful or healthy. And here's one way. You, you can hear what you're about to hear without having the gospel in your heart and mind and it will crush you. The guilt of it will overwhelm you. You cannot hear what Jesus says without feeling a measure of shame. And if the gospel, the good news that Jesus died for the sin and the shame, the good news that the cross, on the cross, He, His, his how's it go in the song? His, it, the cross ran red so that our sins could wash white. If, if you don't hear the cross, if you don't know about the grace of God, if you don't know about the mercy of God, this will devastate you. This will ruin you. This will, this will crush you. But if you know the grace of God, if you know the gospel, you can look at this and you can think about this. You can look it right in the eye and say, I don't fear this sin because Jesus died for this sin. I can face it and I can deal with it and by the grace of God, I can overcome it more and more and more, knowing that nothing can condemn me. No accusation against me will stand. 
And it's with that knowledge of the gospel that we need to look at this. Unless you don't know the gospel, unless you don't believe in Christ, in which case you do need to fear, but only fear long enough to run to Christ and trust in Christ. So let's, let's with the gospel as, as the, the lens through which we look at this, let's, let's consider together the nature, the consequence, and the remedy for sexual sin. First of all, the nature of sexual sin. In, in short, according to Jesus, sexual sin is any intentional sexual desire or activity that does not conform both externally and internally to God's design. What was God's design? One man, one woman in a covenanted marriage relationship for life. So any sexual desire or activity externally or internally that doesn't conform to God's design is sexual sin. Somebody has put it succinctly, biblically defined sexual purity is external and internal chastity before marriage and fidelity after. Chastity before and fidelity after. Notice the text here. Jesus uses several terms to describe the nature of sexual sin. He uses the term adultery actually four times. In, in verse 27, he speaks, he quotes the law, you shall not commit adultery. In verse 28, he says, if you look at a woman with lustful intent, you have already committed adultery. And then down in verse 32, he says that those who divorce and remarry commit Adultery. Adultery is any intentional sexual desire or activity with somebody who is not your covenanted lifelong husband or wife in violation of your covenant of marriage fidelity. So adultery. And then there's this term lust in verses, verse 28. I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with... and, and goes the other way too. Everyone who looks at a man or a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her or him in his or her heart. Jesus' language here is very specific and very precise. And it's important lest our consciences go hyperactive on us here. Okay? Jesus' language is precise. He is talking about intentional looking. If you look, what does he say? If you look at a woman with lustful intent, literally in the original language, if you look in order to lust, if, if, you're, if your intention is to in any way gratify or satisfy some kind of sexual desire, then you've committed adultery in the looking. The other thing to notice here is the, the, the tense of the verb. You really can't see it clearly in our translation, but Jesus says everyone who looks at a woman, literally everyone who is looking, everyone looking, it's a grammar moment. It is a present active participle. It's talking about ongoing action. Jesus is not referring here... As, as Craig Keener writes, Jesus refers here not to noticing a person's beauty, but to imbibing it, meditating on it, seeking to possess it. 
What Jesus is saying is adultery is when we intentionally look on another person that we are not married to and our intent is to to think sexual thoughts and we stay thinking, we stay looking, we stay engaged until it has affected us. This is, he says, adultery. This is sexual sin. If you look on a woman or man who is not your spouse with that intent, you are just as guilty as if you went to bed with them. I should guard my theology there again. Is it accurate to say that you are just as guilty? Um, I'm not sure. Um, It is accurate to say that you are guilty of adultery, but you can aggravate that guilt by taking it to the next levels. You can make it a worse form of adultery, if you will. But it is adultery. Jesus says that if we look in order to lust, we are guilty. If we imagine ourselves with someone who is not our spouse, we have committed adultery. Dear ones, our hearts manufacture 10,000 ways to do this. It manifests as pornography, as lingering looks at the woman walking down the street, or the woman in the sports car, or with longing thoughts about that sensitive and caring man at the workplace. It manifests in many romance novels and visits to the beach and swimsuit editions and flirtations at the office in which there are little pleasures and little fantasies and little arousals resulting in a growing eagerness to get back to work on Monday so you can see that person again. Jesus says that if we are guilty in our hearts, we are guilty. What's on the inside matters as much as what's on the outside. He has identified adultery. He has identified lust. And now a third form of sexual immorality that Jesus mentions is illicit or unbiblical divorce and remarriage. Notice verses 31 and 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. Whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Uh, this is so sensitive. This is so difficult. I, uh, I don't even know what to do. I don't even know what to say here. Um, Divorce has touched every one of our families, one way or another, every family. Um, I don't know how many people in this room have been through the agony of divorce. I don't know. Um, I don't know the stories. I don't know the circumstances. Um, So I want you to please hear uh, what is clear here with the understanding that there may be much that is not clear. Uh, 
There, there may be much that you just need to sit down and talk with a pastor about or some really mature Christian about. What is clear here is this. When a divorce happens for reasons other than infidelity, when a divorce happens, well, because a man just gets tired of his wife, or because a man wants a younger model, or because a man just, well, just went through a midlife crisis, or because a man or a woman did this. When a divorce happens, for reasons other than are clearly biblical reasons. And then a remarriage happens. Adultery happens. I know that raises a thousand questions. I can't answer them here. I know the questions exist. Please feel free to ask them later. Ask them in another context. But see, what was happening was this. The Pharisees in Jesus' day... They knew what the seventh commandment meant. When it said, you shall not commit adultery, they knew what that meant. It means you can't cheat on your wife. So they had to try, and they knew how to obey the letter of that. Okay, I'm supposed to externally keep the command, so I can't cheat on my wife. So what am I going to do? Well, let me create new ways to divorce my wife so that she is no longer my wife. And I can do what I want with this other woman. See, if it's adultery to divorce your wife or to, to be unfaithful to your wife, then just get rid of your wife. And so they had these long lists of things that made it permissible for a man to divorce his wife. Among them, believe it or not, was burning the toast. There was actually a school of thought back then that, that said that. So if the wife ruined dinner or breakfast. That was justification for divorce, and then a man could go find somebody else. Jesus is putting his foot down. Jesus is saying, no. No. There are very limited reasons for a divorce in Scripture. And if a divorce happens apart from those reasons, then adultery happens. Do you see what's going on? You see what Jesus is doing? He is undercutting all of our ways of, of getting around the law of God. <laughs> he is saying, he, he knows that we're like that child at the beginning of my message who is sitting down on the outside but not sitting down on the inside. He, he knows that that's human nature. We, we, all right, we'll do it externally, but internally we're not there. We don't want to obey. He knows that. And so he says, that must stop. And, and, and you must comply with my law on the inside, just like on the outside. And don't start going around and creating new ways to escape the implications of my law and, and so that you can do what you want. No, obey me. Obey me in heart and obey me in hand. Obey me externally and obey me internally. 
That's the nature of sexual sin is when we twist the law of God so that we can somehow avoid or evade the law of God or when we disobey it on the inside when in fact we might look like we're obeying it on the outside. So what's the consequence of this? Where does this lead? Well, look at verses 29 and 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Jesus is saying that sexual sin, when it is practiced without repentance leads to judgment. It leads to wrath. It leads to hell. There are, there are many consequences for sexual sin, including relational and physical and psychological and marital and familial and emotional. And they'd all be worth talking about. But I wouldn't be faithful to God's Word and I wouldn't be faithful to King Jesus right here if I talked about those things without talking about this. My dear friends, if in fact you are practicing sexual immorality without repentance, it is going on and on and you are not mourning it and grieving it and seeking to forsake it by the power of God. You are still in your sins and you're going to hell. There's hope, but you need to hear the truth. We all do. I need to hear this. I need to hear this. Say, well, Tim, you're a Christian. Tim, you're a pastor. I need to hear this. I need the fear of God in me when it comes to these things. I need, I need to know what a holy God thinks about these things. I need to know what a God of love and fidelity and faithfulness and purity thinks about these things that are not faithful, that are impure, that are unloving. I need to know so that I know where I stand with Him and so that I will fear sin and fear temptation and in the words of Paul flee it like Joseph did back in Genesis when Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him and he ran like the wind oh my friends brothers and sisters for this is this sexual sin is no respecter of persons male and female alike if temptation is coming your way, run like the wind. Flee. Get out of there. For it will ruin your life. And if left unchecked and unrepented of, will land you in hell. So, what's the remedy? What's the answer? Let me, let me give you Two answers, and we'll get to the rest of them next week. Answer number one is be convicted and repent of your sin. Be convicted and repent of your sin. Jesus' first words of public ministry, his first word in chapter 4 of Matthew was what? Repent. 
for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Repent. God calls us to repent. That's, what, that's part of what it means when Jesus says earlier in Matthew 5, blessed are those who mourn. Repentance is a mournful sorrow over sin that results in a new direction in life. So the first step toward the, the curing, if you will, of our sexual sin problem is repentance. Repent. Be convicted. Don't blow this off. Don't ignore it. Don't say, ah, that's not, he's making a big deal out of nothing. Folks, this isn't me talking. Read your Bible. This is God talking. This is King Jesus talking. Repent. Mourn your sin. Second, be trusting in the forgiving grace of Christ. Because what does Jesus say? He says, Blessed are those who mourn, finish it, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn their sins. Blessed are those who grieve their sins. Blessed are those who look in the mirror and they see sin. They see the sin of their lives. They see the sexual sin. They see all the other junk. They see it. They grieve it. They mourn it. They beg for mercy for they will be comforted. Jesus died for those sins. You name the sin, you name the sexual sin, you name the impurity, you name the infidelity. It does not matter. The worst kind of sexual sin you can think of, Jesus died for that sin. Jesus poured out his blood for that. Jesus was considered guilty of that sin for you. So that you wouldn't have to be considered guilty. Oh, what love is this. As Leah said before, the cross, yes, it makes us aware of our sin, but more so it makes us aware of the love of Christ and the mercy of Christ. So be convicted and repent and then be trusting in the forgiving grace of God right here, right now, Say, Lord Jesus, I am so guilty, I can't even begin to describe it. But I know you died for me. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And like Jesus said of that sinner in Matthew, or Luke it was, who said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said, he went to his home justified. He went home a forgiven man. Not on the basis of anything he did, but just on the basis of his cry for mercy and his trust in Christ. And you can do that right here, right now. Be convicted and repent. Be trusting in the forgiving grace of Christ. Let me give you, let me give you one more. Be confident in the transforming power of Christ. Be confident in the transforming power of Christ. Don't look at your sin and your addictions and your bondage when it comes to these things and say, no, there's no way I can change. I want to change. I want to be holy. I want to be righteous. I want to be pure. I, I want to, in heart as well as hand, I want to do what pleases Christ. 
but I'm so far gone. I'm so broken. There's no hope for me. No. What did Jesus say earlier? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. You see, that's Christ's promise. If you believe in Him as your Savior, He has pledged to you that He is going to make you as holy as you now want to be. And how holy do you want to be? Don't you want to be perfectly holy? You, don't you want to never sin again? Don't you want to never lust again? Don't you want to never, ever, ever think an impure thought or think an unrighteous thought or an ungodly thought or an unfaithful thought? Don't you just want it always to be pure, always to be righteous? Don't you hunger for it and thirst for it? I long for it. I long for it. And Jesus says, you're going to be filled. My transforming grace is going to do that to you. He who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. So press on. Don't quit. Don't despair. Don't give up. Don't think it's too strong for you. It's, it is too strong for you, but it's not too strong for him. The power of Christ is going to break the power of that sin in your life. Now, you'll have to cooperate with that power. You'll have to surrender to that power. You'll have to take steps that are practical and careful in order to avoid temptations and walk in the right places and times and with the right people. Yes, but his power is going to do the work. So be convicted and repent. Be trusting, be trusting in the forgiving mercy of Christ and be confident in the transforming power of God and go out and live this week in a measure of victory that you haven't experienced perhaps ever in your life. Go out in the power of God. Go out in the power of God. Let me pray and then we'll close. Father, would you come and do the work that only you can do, Lord. Make your word living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to hearts and then healing. In Jesus' name, amen.